God, we thank you this morning for all of our mamas. We bless each mom in our midst for all of the life they've given, for the sacrifice. Uh, we bless you, mamas, and we ask for uh, your spirit to fall, that this would be a, a beautiful day for them. And we thank you for all the women who um, give life. And we bless you today in the name of Jesus. We also pray, God, for all of those who are in struggle and challenge, figuring out our way through this time. And we pray that your goodness would be evident, Lord. We know that you're good, that no matter what we face, you're good, and that we would trust in your goodness, and you would settle that over us, that we would walk knowing that we have a good father, we have a good friend, we have a good Holy Spirit. And we pray that you'd bless all of our interactions and all of our conversations and give us nudges to reach out and say things that you would say to people, to throw lifelines to people. We thank you, God, that you're on the move. We want to partner with you whatever way we can. And again, we just bless our moms in Jesus' name.
guys all at church. I'm here to testify that Sozo is just as powerful online as it is in per person. I was happy to be on the Sozo team and saw God powerfully at work and then I got to have my own Sozo and it felt so intimate. My eyes were closed, I had my earbuds in and I felt like the team members were with me in my room and uh, God's presence was so powerful and some highlights include Jesus welcoming me at birth affirming my ethnicity, my gender, and my birth order. And I felt like the big thing that he did for me is he set me free from, he set me more free from um, feeling like I could express my needs to him and make um, my voice known, not just for others, but for myself. So he broke off some lies and brought deeper healing some, into some earlier memories of my life where I felt like it was not good to have my own needs and not good to bother other people with my voice. So uh, since then, I felt a greater freedom, a greater intimacy with the Lord, and um, a greater freedom to say what I really need and feel. So I encourage you in this time, when things might be coming up, to sign up for a social session. God is at work equally online as he is in person. Good morning, Blue Water. So glad you're joining us this morning from wherever you're joining us from. Hey, thanks for sending in your community in quarantine photos. Life with Jesus leads us to unexpected and rich encounters, especially in this time. And we celebrate the hearts and the try that this activity exhibited in our community. And we'll continue to pray for more time to get to know our neighbors in a new way and look forward to the stories that follow. We're going to continue our worship with our offering. And you can give in two ways, online or just mail your check to the office. If you're new or visiting, please feel no obligation to give this morning, uh, but we'd love to stay in touch. So sign up for our weekly newsletters on bluewatermission.org. Scroll to the bottom and enter your name and email address. Today, 
is Mother's Day. Every year we try to come up with a way to honor motherhood. It's hard to put into words, but we tried. Nice and kind. Empathetic. Meticulous. Joyful. Humble. And Marvel fanatic. Helpful. Caring. Thoughtful. Excellent. Hardworking. Super. Calid, fragilistic, espialidocious. Kind. Motivating. <laughs> Hardworking. What do you girls think of your mom? Hilarious. Loving. Patient. Jerry. Forgiving. Mom, you're musical. Mom, you're persistent. Mommy's helpful. Kind. Good. Funny. Joyful. Snuggly. Eager. Kind. Beautiful. Happy. Loving. Loving. Greatness. Big heart. Go. Happy Mother's Day. My mom is hardworking. Happy Mother's Day. My mom is a great mom. Um, happy Mother's Day. Our mom, mom is awesome. Is awesome. Mom is fair-minded. Mom is awesome. Sauce, cause she's saucy. Happy Mother's Day! Happy Mother's Day! My mom is giving! Selfless. Lovely. Amazing. Helpful. Mom! Thank you, kids. Uh, actually, kids, can you stand up and we'll pray for you. Oh, Father, we thank you for our children. We thank you for the creativity that they brought and uh, the love that they bring to this congregation. We bless them uh, with, your, with your love and your community. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. What do we got today, Jordan? What's the sermon about? Today, uh, the sermon is about how usually the battle about truth is not really a battle about what's true. It's a battle about what we feel about what's true. Originally, I started doing uh, little virus updates at the beginning of our sermons because I just wanted there to be a voice for people that said, you know, we're going to be okay. You know, a voice of confidence in a season of fear. Uh, and then more and more I've done these virus updates because I'm concerned that people aren't really getting an unbiased version of the truth. And I, I think it's important for people to be anchored in, in truth and facts and evidence. It really helps us uh, in emotional times. Right now in society, we are talking mostly about opening it up again. We've been in virus shutdown and now all over America uh, and all over the world we're seeing communities uh, open back up, letting businesses restart. And that is causing a tremendous amount of anxiety around the world, a tremendous amount of debate in the media. And it seems like the media has been divided into politicized camps, which is always a bad thing, because whenever get, things get really political, I think the truth suffers. People get more biased. So you have one camp that just seems to be trying to prove that Trump is an idiot and doesn't deserve to be president. Okay, and then you've got another camp that's trying to prove that the media in the first camp are politically deranged and, and don't know everything. And they're arguing back and forth. And I think they're using virus information as weapons in their argument instead of just trying to be helpful and trying to be true and trying to be evidence-based. So right now we're talking about opening up again because we've been in this quarantine shutdown. Here, here's a truth that I think it's, it's useful for all of us to remember. The shutdown was a strategy not to reduce the number of infections, but to slow down the rate of infection. Because we didn't want there to be a sudden spike that overwhelmed our hospitals and our emergency rooms. It has always been clear that once we opened up again, infection, infections would, would begin to uptick uh, because people would be moving around more. That's all according to plan. But as we open up and there's been a slight you know, uptick in infection rate, people are freaking out. This uh, was what is supposed to have, had, supposed to have happened. Um, how, 
we administer shutdowns and how we come out of the quarantine is really debatable. I mean, this is a discussion worth having and nobody knows exactly the right way to do it, least of all um, me. Uh, but we have examples around the world in which people have taken different shutdown strategies. There's one country in Europe that didn't shut down at all. That country is Sweden. They decided not to do the shutdown. They just told people to try to maintain social distance. And Sweden has been hit hard by the virus. They have somewhere around 280 deaths per million people in their population. So they've been hit pretty hard, but not necessarily harder than other countries who did full-on social economic shutdown. So uh, Sweden did not get hit as bad as Belgium. They didn't get hit, hit as bad as Spain or Italy or France or the Netherlands or the UK. They got hit about as hard as Ireland. And when you adjust for massive disparities in population, uh, the death rate in Sweden is roughly the same as, um, as in uh, America. So I don't know, maybe they did the right thing. It's hard to tell. One thing that's happening in Sweden is that their population is now approaching the herd immunity level, which gives them protection from the virus. And they're the only place in the world uh, where that's true. So maybe their way was, was the better way. Here's the reality. The virus kills people. And the shutdown that we've undertaken to control the virus, that itself will kill people because it will cause economic crises that, that cause a lot of destruction and, and a lot of death. Um, so the shutdown can't just go on and on and on. We need to figure out how to get out of this. Um, here's the thing. We're going to have to figure out how to live in this new world. It's going to be a long time before the risk from the COVID virus is zero. This is kind of the new normal for us. This is life now. So we're going to have to use what we've learned about the virus, and we've learned actually quite a bit. We're going to have to use that to protect people in the future. In particular, we're going to have to use it to protect the most vulnerable people. Um, the virus kills mostly elderly people and people who are sick with other underlying conditions. But the fallout from the shutdown is going to kill mostly poor people, and disproportionately it's going to kill poor people from poor countries who don't have the amassed wealth that we do. We're going to have to figure this out. And I think the church needs to be ready for this new world in which things are scary, things are risky, but people need care. And we want to move in a spirit that's helpful and truth-based. Two things that I think we're going to need in particular is boldness, our boldness, and, and generosity. Uh, mostly in this world, the battle for truth isn't a battle about what's true. Instead, it's a battle about what's politically, culturally, or emotionally acceptable to people. That's just kind of human nature. That's how things work in this world. And you can test this with respect to your own behavior, I think. Do you do what you know to be correct and healthy all of the time? Or do you simply do what feels best a lot of the time? Do you always do the right healthy thing, Quack? Mm -mm, no. Ben? Never. Julie? We know Julie does, but you know. Antonio? Not always. Not always. Uh, we often do what we know to be not true, not healthy, not good, just because we, I don't know, we feel like it, right? We just feel like it. And, and you know, we are relatively spiritual people. Uh, the church that's listening to this tend to be relatively mature people, people who have an uncommon dedication to truth and, and discipline. Uh, Christians tend to be among the more mature humans in that respect. And yet, obviously, we don't get it right all the time. Uh, imagine how it works in the rest of the world. Speaking of respecting truth and all that that requires, uh, our passage today comes from Acts chapter 4. We're in a sermon series in the book of Acts. Um, and uh, we are continuing from where we left off last week. What's happening in the story of Acts, which is a history of the birth of the church and what the early church went through to establish the Jesus movement on earth. What's happening in the count so far is that Christians are improvising. They're kind of inventing the church in real time in these accounts. 
they're improvising based on fluid conditions and opportunities as they emerge. It makes for very interesting reading. In chapter 3, we looked at last week, Peter and John have just publicly healed a crippled beggar. Uh, and the authorities, the religious authorities, the political authorities, are furious about it, uh, as it, as it turns out. Uh, here's, here's how it opens. Uh, Peter and John have just healed this crippled guy on the temple grounds. And the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, which was a certain political party, religious political party, came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Let's stop there. The Sadducees, which was the dominant religious political party of the day, they did not believe in resurrection. So these guys are very problematic to them. One, they've just miraculously healed a guy in front of a crowd. So they have a lot of credibility, but they are preaching a doctrine that is not politically convenient for the Sadducees. So right away, the discussion becomes very politicized. So they're disturbed. So they seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard their message believe, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So the church has gone from about 3,000 to about 5,000 as a result of, of this miracle. And so what they do, the political religious authorities, the Sadducees, rough them up a little bit and say, you know, you should not preach what you preach. And they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name do you do this, you rabble-rousers, you treasonous traitors? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So Peter, just, he takes none of it. He doesn't give in to the intimidation. And he throws in a little, and there is resurrection from the dead, just so you all know. Uh, and that's how, the, that's how the story opens. Um, that's how the story opens. A contentious environment in which Peter and John are throwing down. We get this almost hilarious vignette wherein the religious and political authorities want the Jesus movement to stop because it's inconvenient for them, but they have to admit that a miracle just happened. They're wrestling with the truth. And so this passage uh, is a great one uh, for studying how, how that sort of thing works in the world. Um, can read along with me Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking particularly at verses 13 uh, through 35. When they, the, the authorities, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. So, so even the authorities are realizing these guys shouldn't be able to face off with us. Maybe it's because they hung around with Jesus, who himself was just a working guy uh, who did great things. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, remember this crippled guy suddenly could walk and he's been dancing around the temple, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, the meeting, the Congress, and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And they called them in again and commanded them <clears throat> not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves what is right in God's sight to obey you rather than to obey God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. 
After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. So their response um, to the intimidation and being roughed up is to get together with their people and they prayed together to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord, against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then the passage ends with this little addendum here. All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them. And from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as they had need. Great story. Uh, I think a lot of parallels uh, uh, to the crisis time that we're going in right now. Lots of threats, lots of disturbances. Um, <clears throat> and it starts with this, with this vignette. Peter and John do a miracle. The authorities cannot deny that a miracle happened. So that's a problem for them that causes dissonance. But they don't agree with the message that Peter and John are preaching, so they see them as a political threat. So what they do, what they resort to is A, a careful analytical discussion of the truth and the events that have transpired, or B, intimidation and bullying. B. B. Intimidation and bullying. They just rage against Peter and John. They throw them in jail for a night and they rough them up. They warn them to behave better. Uh, their weapons are, are accusation and, and threat as opposed to, you know, fact against fact or truth against truth. Uh, they don't care what's true, right? They have pre-committed to a perspective. Uh, and, and so no amount of debate is going to move them from their spot. Uh, and that sort of discussion devolves into intimidation and accusation. And Peter and John simply reply something along the lines of, well, we have to stay true uh, to what we know to be true. Simple enough. So after their release, Peter and John uh, get together with uh, their friends, the other Christians, and they pray for, what do they pray for? Do you notice in the story? Do they pray for peace? Do they pray for protection? Do they pray for answers to their dilemma? Do they pray for provision? Do they pray for power? They pray for none of those things. Instead, they pray for boldness. And that always strikes me as a curious part of the story. If you were Peter and John, and you've just been thrown into jail for a while, you've just been threatened and, and bullied by the most powerful political figures in, in, in their society, what would you be praying for in that moment? What would you pray for in a situation like that? Unity as a group. I would pray for more of these kind of opportunities to glorify God because they actually did a pretty amazing miracle. I had just said safety because um, what they were doing was, it was risky and, and bold at that time. And, you know, um, you just don't know how people are going to react to that or if they're going to persecute you for that. It's like they put the burden of responsibility on the Lord and, um, and then ask the Lord for what they need. 
that's what I would have prayed for. <laughs> in their situation, the obvious enemy was intimidation. It was a spirit of threat. Uh, and so their request is for boldness. They move in the opposite spirit. If the spirit coming against you is intimidation, well, you know, you pray for boldness. You pray for the countervailing strength. They didn't pray for an immediate solution to their situation. They prayed for strength so that they could be who they were meant to be in their situation. That's a worthy meditation, I think, for all of us. I mean, what is coming against you in your situation? If you feel intimidated, you feel threatened, you might be tempted just to pray for the easy out. But the story suggests that maybe instead you should pray for more strength. The opposite spirit would be boldness. What's coming against you? Is it fear of embarrassment? Well, maybe you want to pray for freedom from what people think. What's coming against you? Is it the weight of disappointment in your life? Well, maybe you want to then pray for, I don't know, faithfulness or hope or self-discipline to keep going, something like that. Um, is uh, somebody coming against you in a spirit of arrogance or pride? Well, you could pray for their downfall, or you could pray that you could move in a spirit of humility and grace, which is the opposite of the spirit that's coming against you. Uh, what's beleaguering you right now? Is it loneliness? What would be the opposite of loneliness? Well, probably something like love or, you know, outreach, something like that. Pray that God would empower you to move strongly in that spirit. Moving in the opposite spirit is one of the great principles of the kingdom of God and something that we should all think about when times are hard. Do you get it? A principle that uh, has been very fruitful in my own life. By all means, figure out what it is that's coming against you. What is it? What is that feeling that's making you feel pressed down? Okay, don't be good if that went away, but one thing you can do in the meantime is that you can pray that you move in the antidote spirit, uh, that you could uh, be a shining light. Um, figure out what the issue is and pray that God empowers you to move in opposition to it in a good way. So yeah, the first thing they do is that they pray for boldness against the spirit of intimidation and bullying that's coming against them. And God answers them. How does God answer them? Well, it turns out that he answers them with an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and a great deal of power that the Spirit brings. I think there's something about like needing boldness to like teach that and also like perform the miracle so that people see that it was Jesus. Mm -hmm. Like that 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 Jesus is God and and for folks to make that connection, especially because they're ministering um, to their own community right now. Yeah, I think they were being pioneers, you know, and maybe in the midst of all that power being manifest and seen with their eyes, they all kind of rose up with that tide and kind of recognized that, you know, the time was now for them. Let's go for it. Let's do it. You know, and they did and Holy Spirit responded. Okay. So they prayed for boldness, and what happened is that God gave them an inspiration for boldness. I gave them the presence of the Holy Spirit, an outpouring, a manifestation of power. He didn't just give them the character of boldness. He gave them some evidence of his presence with them. And one assumes that that made them bold in the future because, indeed, the account says that they were then able to go out and to speak the word of God boldly. It's just a great principle of following Jesus in this world, that when you ask for a way through a tough situation, God will often send the way maker. God will often send the Holy Spirit to you. He won't necessarily send an easy answer. He will send himself. He will send um, the Holy Spirit. The second thing uh, that they do as a community, we're told at the end of the passage, is that they, they stick together. Uh, they fashion an awesome missional community. The passage ends with a brief description of how they lived. 
All the believers were together in one heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. You had people selling properties and coming and just laying the money at the apostles' feet so that everyone in the Christian community, and, and almost overnight this community numbered in thousands of people, but it says that everyone in the Christian community were taken care of and nobody in that community had any material need, which was really important because in this society, A, most people were poor to begin with, and B, the persecutions had started. Nobody knew what was happening exactly. Um, and uh, there was some sense, I believe, from the very beginning that everybody could be taken care of if everybody stuck together. Uh, amazing uh, little vignette from the early church. When they were inventing how to do church together, and one of the first things they landed on was, well, we're all going to take care of each other and share and be incredibly generous. I can't help but notice that the progression in chapter 4 of the book of Acts matches pretty much exactly the progression in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, if you remember. In chapter 2, the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, upon a bunch of uh, Jesus followers who were praying together. And then chapter 2 ends with a little description of, of then how they lived, that they shared everything, that they were really generous, and nobody among them had any need. In chapter 4, we see the believers pray together in a crisis situation. Lo and behold, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them. And, uh, and then the chapter ends with a description of, of how they lived together with incredible generosity and sharing, and there was no... no no one among them who had any need. It's as if the author of the book of Acts, who is Luke, by the way, wants to continue to drive home a point, the point that generosity and boldness go hand in hand, that the, the, the Christian life of ministry in a fallen world requires a great deal of boldness, a great deal of faith, but it also requires a community of generosity. There is, is a connection generosity and boldness together. And one might ask, why is that the case? Why does Luke keep hammering home this point? Their boldness wasn't a bluff. You know, it was based on true empowerment. So they knew they could manifest Christ. So once you can manifest Christ, you have all, you have like true wealth. You have a perpetual spring, you know? So I think that like the boldness is like you, you lose you lose like your inhibition almost like with the when you receive the Holy Spirit, like, you know, it's like they don't, there's, they don't really care about their own image or their, the consequences of actions that the Lord tells them to do because the Lord told them to do it. And secondly, it's like anything they own isn't theirs anymore. So they're going to be super generous and super bold. It's, you know, I think that they're tied together. Generosity and boldness always empower each other. If we are generous with one another in Christian community, it, it, it frees us from the need to be overly careful in life. It's just really helpful to know that, that we've got each other's back, uh, that we're not going to you know, let material uh, depravity wipe anyone out. Uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed most about uh, Blue Water Mission, as, as we started from you know, a small group of a few dozen believers to the church that we have now, is the way that God worked generosity into our DNA from the very beginning. Uh, we had just learned that from Jesus, that if we were going to pull this off, if we were going to pull off a life of faith adventure in the world, that we just needed to share, that we need to, to break down the financial boundaries between us. Because while not all of us had enough to get by, together we had enough for everyone to get by. And that was a big story of the early uh, Blue Water days. It's a big reason why we have community houses today, people living in community, sharing and making it possible for people to live in what is a very economically competitive city, Honolulu, the toughest place in America to make a living according to many studies. But this kind of helps us live together, live well, and to live freely to do what God calls us to do instead of constantly worrying about what we need to do to get by in the world. And that was a principle that was manifest here in the early church as well. In the early days of Blue Water Mission, when we were small, the leaders of the church would say, hey, 
seriously, if you're a member of this community and you have bills that you cannot pay, tell me about it and I will pay your bills. Uh, I started saying that in the, in the early days. I didn't have any money myself, but I felt that it was important for me to manifest the faith that the money would appear. So the way for me to do that is just to say, well, I'll pay it somehow. I don't, I don't know how, but you know, you don't have the faith for it, tell me. I'll have the faith for it and, and we'll get your bill paid. I remember one young woman who was in the fellowship back in those days and she was struggling to get by, she was struggling to pay rent and then she had car trouble, her car broke down. Well, that happens a lot, right? And so she was short, I think it was about $400. And uh, at that point in time, Sony and I, like, we didn't have any income, <laughs> you know. Uh, we had a little bit of savings and some things that we could sell and stuff like that. But she took me up on my word and she came to me and said, well, I need $400. She was a little new to the community. I need $400. I heard you say that you would pay it. So, you know, how about it? I'm a little uncomfortable asking, but I don't know. You seem, you seem to know how this is supposed to work. So I need a $400 check. Um, so, um, so I wrote her the check for $400. It's not really important to the story. Uh, where the money came from, but eventually I had it. I gave it to her, she paid her bills. And she started telling people uh, about this. And you would think that the result of her telling people that Jordan paid her automotive repair bills was that more people would come to Jordan, right? But that's not what happened at all. What happened was that people started sharing with one another, that she was able to share money with the next person when her next paycheck came in. What it did is it released generosity in the community. And all the years uh, when I said, hey, if you can't pay a bill, come to me. All the years I did that, and there were about four or five years at the beginning, I only ever had, I think, three people approach me. Instead, people learn to take care of one another. The spirit of generosity begets generosity uh, is the way that it worked. Incidentally, I don't stand in front of the church anymore and say, hey, if you uh, can't pay your bills, come see me and I'll pay them for you. And the reason I say that, just for the record, isn't because I'm scared uh, financially what it will mean for me and my family, but because with the numbers it's become impossible for me to know everyone in the church and know their situation and the spirit in which they're moving and stuff like that. So instead, we've sort of you know, push it down. I mean, go to your Ohana group leader or go to your companions in the church and try very hard to take care of one another. And that actually works. We have loads of promises from Jesus about God taking care of us. Consider the lilies of the field. Consider the birds of the air. Your Heavenly Father knows what you need. He provides for them. He'll provide for you. You probably don't need for me to go over the teachings, if you've hung around Jesus at all, those teachings are very familiar to you. God provides. And one of the ways in which God will provide for you individually is by providing for the Blue Water community, which will then provide for you. And you must also, when your turn comes, provide for the Blue Water community. Christians have been doing this from the very beginning, and it was such a big deal in the early church that Luke mentions it twice at length in chapter 2 and chapter 4. It comes up later in the book of Acts. He's always hammering on this point. We can get through it together. The Lord is generous, but he's generous to the ohana, not necessarily just to the individual. Rely on one another. And one of the upshots of that is that will make you very bold. It will make you very free in the world. It will change the way you feel that you can live. We don't need to be scared of the coming economic crisis. Certainly not as concerned as other people because the Lord provides and because we have each other. Boldness and generosity, it goes together. Can I hear an amen, guys? Amen. Incidentally, can you buy me lunch today? Amen. All right. That's what I like to hear. Burgers all around. <laughs> I get you a steak. Christians need uh, the boldness to be generous and the sort of generous community that empowers us to be bold together. And that's one of the takeaways from this story. But especially now, as we go into a time of uncertainty and fear and, and outrage and contention and economic crisis in the world, 
generosity and boldness. That's the formula, man. Boldness plus generosity. Generosity plus boldness. That's the formula that the church needs for the coming months and years. I guarantee it. It has been a powerful combination from the beginning, and it's going to be an incredibly powerful combination for us in the coming months and years. And that will release tremendous harvest. That will help us to contend for truth in, in a broader culture that really is less concerned with truth and more concerned with how they feel <laughs> about the truth, what they want to uh, accomplish in their uh, agenda. So here are some application tips. Uh, really, we're just going to end this week with some questions for your consideration. Uh, number one, for your meditation. Are you ready to be ridiculously generous in the coming months and years? Are you ready to be ridiculously generous with all that you have? You know, we know that all that we have comes from God. Are you willing to be generous with all that you have? Think about that in your conversations with God this week. Are you ready to be generous? Because you will be called to be generous. You will be called to be generous by the Lord for the purposes of the Lord. Uh, and then question number two, obviously. Are you ready to be bold? Are you ready to be bold in a world that doesn't really respect you know, truth? That doesn't really respect evidence, who will respond to what you know to be true, not with rational discussion, but with bullying and intimidation and a lot of political outrage and tools like that. Against that spirit, boldness is what you need. Are you ready to be bold? Are you ready to move in the opposite spirit? And what do you think that means for you anyway? What does it look like for you to be bold? in the environment in which you find yourself. Uh, for me, uh, I think it means something along the lines of, of being automatic. Like Peter and John in their situation, like they just knew their testimony. They just kind of knew what they believed. They knew what they had experienced. So when they were bullied, or when they were threatened, when people tried to embarrass them, they're just like, ah, you know, I kind of know what I know. I believe what I believe. And there wasn't any hesitation in their behavior. They knew what they were supposed to do. I try to go out into the world every day knowing what I'm supposed to do. And then when the opportunities come up, I behave automatically instead of wrestling with myself, wrestling against intimidation and whatnot. I try not to have to talk myself into things. You know, I believe what I believe. And then I just have to be bold with it. Boldness is always action-oriented, always. It doesn't talk to itself a lot. <laughs> it just does what needs to be done. You know yourself. What will the enemy do to you to try to defeat your boldness? In what spirit will the enemy come against you in order to make you hesitant, cautious, careful? Answer that for yourself. Consider it in conversation with God. Father God, I pray that we would be all that we should be in the coming months and years. Uh, I pray, like the disciples prayed in Acts chapter 4, for boldness. That we would be able to speak your word, to minister supernaturally, and to move in reckless generosity as the needs be. I pray, Lord, for a spirit of generosity among us and a spirit of generosity that we bring to the world. We know that you provide, and we'll start saying it right now with loud voice. God provides, never fear. God provides, never fear. We know what we know, we believe what we believe, and we will stand upon it no matter what intimidation comes against. 
in Jesus' name. Hey guys, thank you again for joining us for worship today. We are so blessed to be in community during this time. Remember that if you've got a prayer request or want someone to pray with you for a breakthrough, you can email julie at bluewatermission.org. Include your phone number and your name and someone will pray with you between 10.30 and 11 a.m. today. I also want to make you aware of a wonderful resource we put together these last two months. It's called the Blue Water Break Blog. And if you haven't already seen it, it's a great array of voices, reflections, and prayers from some of my very favorite people in our community. The easiest way to get to that is to go to our Blue Water Facebook page, look down the posts, and you'll see the Blue Water Break Blog comes out two to three times a week. And um, there's just a lot to focus your soul and get inspired during this, this period of life. A very happy Mother's Day to all of you fellow moms. God bless you. Keep up the great work. You guys are my heroes. And a special congratulations to Daniel and Sora Lim, who had their twin boys uh, this last week. As many of you heard in their testimony a couple weeks ago, these guys waited uh, in faith and in struggle for over a dozen years for their children. And we're just so happy for the Lim family. God bless you guys especially. We look forward to seeing you all very soon.